You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Hey, everybody, I hope that you are on your third cup of coffee already. I know I am. Um, In fact, I might be on my fifth or my seventh, could be my 11th. I'm not quite sure. I know it's a prime number. I'm well into my second pot, and I have upgraded. I uh, have abandoned the little flowery coffee cup that some of you spoke uh, so ill of. You just, for some reason, it was not a popular cup. And I have moved, I've upgraded to like kind of a 1970s ceramic blue mug with um, a moose on it. It says Alaska. I have no idea where this came from. I mean, no, it came from Alaska. I'm sure it didn't come from like South Dakota, but I don't know. It's been in our house so long. I'm not quite sure how we got around to it, but we got it. We got it. Uh, We are a couple days into homeschooling. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Crisis schooling. Uh, We are not homeschooling. If you call what we are doing homeschooling, you make real homeschoolers irritated. Uh, We're not really homeschooling. This is just trying to make life work given the shutdown and what makes it A little trickier is we have kids spread out in a couple of different schools, and we have a hodgepodge of technology. If we were all using the same system and the same technology, this would be a little bit easier. But I've got kids on Google Classroom. I've got kids on another proprietary system that Blue Valley uses. I've got kids using PCs, um, an iPad, a Chromebook, and a MacBook. And so every time you sit down to help a child, everything you just did on the last system, doesn't work. You got to use something completely different. And uh, I wish we were standardized, but it is what it is. Last night, I mentioned on Instagram that I'd answer a couple of questions. So I'll hit uh, two of those. You know, when you ask the general public for questions, you get you get high quality inquiries. We'll put it that way. And so uh, I'm just going to grab two. Somebody asked, how's Grayson? Grayson, if you don't know, is our second son. He is 22 years old, going on 23 here pretty quickly, a couple weeks. And Gray lives downtown with his buddies. They uh, have jobs, and while he's worked in the coffee scene, so he had a job until recently, and everything is kind of shut down regarding the food sector or service, and so he is not working right now. He's between opportunities, as they say, but he's doing well. We see him uh, once in a while, check in and and see how he's doing. So so that's Grayson. Uh, Second question is what character on Gilligan's Island do I relate to the most? Or, or who am I? How would I just, I think that was what it was. Who am I on Gilligan's Island? I've never been asked that question before. I've never thought about I had to think about who was on Gilligan's Island. I, what I finally landed on is I kind of, I think I want to be the professor, but I have a tendency to trend towards the skipper is my guess. So I, I probably identify as a professor with a skipper wing in, in um, Enneagram terms, professor with, with a skipper wing. That would be who, who I am. I uh, want to dive right in to what we want to talk about a little longer today. And uh, these are things that I shared with our prayer and fasting group on Sunday. We got together, got together on Skype um, in about, I don't know, 29 different locations and just talked about where we're going, what we're feeling, and some of the things that the scripture says about it. And I really had a sense of where we wanted to go, and I think it really carries over. Um, is probably more true now than it was on Sunday, is I wanted to get ahead of the curve on our thinking. In order to do that, I kind of had to 
jot down a list of kind of how I felt and what I have thought in these last couple of days as we have faced this uh, dilemma, this pandemic. And I think we all kind of went through initial feelings of disbelief, like this doesn't happen in America. Like you read about this stuff in other countries, but that this doesn't happen here. And then there were bursts of bravado, which is, uh, you know, it can't be that bad. Yeah, it's going to be fine. There's still some people that are stuck in that, by the way. Uh, but you kind of move past that. You realize that, no, this, this is hard. And then you kind of go into a, a season of shock, and then you start to change your behavior, um, and you start uh, thinking twice about going to the grocery store, or you think about making one trip rather than three little trips. And then, you know, towards the weekend, we saw a lot of people get themselves around to kind of trying to self-encourage one another, just kind of trying to lift each other's spirits. We saw people in Italy all stand on their balconies and sing, and we thought, well, that's lovely. Changes nothing, but it, it, it feels good. I saw a video of someone trying it in New York City, stood out on his fire escape. I think he might have sang two lines when someone from the street uh, cursed at him, told him to shut up. So that does not work in New York City like it does in Italy. But I really think the next phase of where this is going and where people's minds are going to be is very concerning to me, very concerning to me, because I think it's going to be that many will encounter discouragement and lack of hope. And I suspect that we're going to see people in seasons of worry and these may be more dangerous than anything that we have seen or feared so far. Now, those with some measure of understanding have got to be ready to encourage those who don't and to encourage one another and even encourage themselves because there's going to be times when the happy truck is not coming to your subdivision. And if we can't learn to manage our own anxiety, help is not coming. Even with social media, you know, everyone has an opinion and in our culture, everyone has a right to an opinion, but not all opinions are created equal or are helpful. Some people, however, have earned the right to speak into this idea of anxiety or worry. You probably know the story of Corrie ten Boom. She and her family were Christians in World War II in Amsterdam, and they chose to risk their lives by hiding Jews in their home. Now, eventually, the family was caught. They were all sent to go to work camps. And Corey was the only one of her immediate family who survived. Her sister died 15 days before Corey was released from the camp, probably by clerical error. And after she was released, all of the women in the camp were gassed and died. Now, I tell you all that to tell you this. When I hear Corey ten Boom has said something about trials or anxiety or discouragement, I listen because she's earned the right to be heard. She said this, Worry doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. In other words, the hopelessness or the anxiety that we might be experiencing, even when justified, doesn't affect the situation. It does affect us. And as this crisis drags on, hopelessness is going to become an entrenched part of our world. Now, if we see it coming, we can muster hope. When you see what is coming, you can muster hope. Right now, we can't see the top of the mountain that we are scaling. We don't know. Does this drop off in a week, two weeks, a month? My hunch is it's further off than we thought it was two weeks ago. I know just in this last week, things have happened that I just did not think would happen. I had three people that I know and, and care about quite a bit lost their jobs. A major ministry that I know of lost the bulk of their staff. 
There could be a time soon where we would call that a regular week. And that's going to wear on the hearts and the minds of people. Now, you may say, well, in my situation, that's not going to happen. And you might be right, but it will happen to people that you love. So if this is about you or for you, take it. And if it's not, take it anyway, because we need to help one another out. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter. We're going to look at chapter 5 real quickly. And this was written to leaders. This chapter starts, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Now, he's writing to leaders here, and some of you immediately disconnect, but the table has shifted in the last couple of weeks. If you have a nugget of understanding about Scripture or a prayer life, congratulations, you're a church leader in this new reality. The days of sitting in mass in a congregation or telling your people, you should hear my pastor explain it, yeah, that's kind of gone out the window. Simon Peter, who wrote Peter, was the most impetuous, given to his emotions, act now and think later disciple that there was. But this was written decades later. This is written between 80 and 90 AD. Christ has been crucified, buried, rose from the dead, and ascended to the Father 50 years before this. So Simon Peter, who cut off the ear of the soldier in in panic in the garden, is almost a completely different man than Simon Peter after 50 years of serving Jesus and serving people. Now he is resolved. What does Simon Peter write to leaders after 50 years of serving the Lord? Does he give them growth principles or management principles? No, after 50 years of being a leader, he turns to other leaders and he writes to them about anxiety and hopelessness. 50 years after the ascension, Peter thought they're going to be anxious and they're going to feel hopeless. 1 Peter chapter 5, I want to read 6 through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world." And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, out of this passage, just keep it open there on your desk if you can. I want to give you a couple of perspectives that he wrote this with. And then a couple of directives from the passage, and it's certainly not an exhaustive study. You could spend a good long time in this passage, and it's probably a good idea to do that. Perspective number one is the fact that in the light of he's talking to leaders, and you are one now, leaders will always struggle with humility. Being a leader can encourage you and beat you up, often in the same day. Personally, I have been up front, and I've been pushed aside. I'll tell you, it's nicer to be up front. And the longer you're up front, the more likely you are to think about the fact that you play some part about being there. And it's true. How God wired you, how your gifts make room for you, all of that has some validity on what it means to be a leader. 
That's why seasons like this of great upheaval are hard for leaders, because it just doesn't threaten their world, it threatens who they are. If I was good at doing it the old way, and the old way is gone away, what good am I now? Some of you are thinking, Randy, I didn't know I was a leader until you told me a minute ago, and you're at a great advantage. You're coming in low. Stay there. Because a short season of leadership can actually make it hard for you to be as adaptable to God's plan as God needs you to be. I love watching the lives of the apostles through the New Testament as examples on how to conduct ourselves. You know, it's one thing to read about the disciples at 16, 17, 18 years old. It's another one to read about Peter in his 60s or 70s. The strongest leader in the New Testament, aside from Jesus, ministered mostly from a position of humility as a prisoner. He's not on the stage. He's not preaching much. He's chained to a wall or he's under house arrest. And that prisoner, as a leader, warns us about being humble. Ephesians 4, 1 and 2, Paul writes, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with humility and gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love. That first perspective, leaders, and we're all leaders now, remember, we will always struggle with humility if we end up chained to a wall. We will still struggle with humility. It's a part of being a leader. But it's a battle worth fighting. Second perspective is that the current reality that we are in, and this is always true, is a season, and seasons end. Everything has shifted in the past few weeks, and there's more shifting to come, and we wonder how we're going to make through it. We see it as a trial, and God sees it as preparation. It's preparation for other difficulties, but it's also preparation for him bringing in, bringing us into what we are prepared for. You say, how do you know this? Because he says later, at the proper time, he may exalt you. Now, why isn't that as comforting as it should be? Why is it not encouraging to know that God's got it under control, and at a proper time, he's going to exalt us? We're struggling because we were overly invested in the season that is ending, and all seasons end. Things are not like they were a month ago, and they are likely not what they're going to be a month from now. Seasons end, sometimes dramatically. And even though history tells us this, we never seem to see it coming, and we're dazed and confused about the last season ending. And once it ends, everybody says, why didn't we see this coming? When our world got turned upside down, as it is being turned right now, we realize we're a little more attached to the way it was than we thought, and it's only started to turn. If we don't live with the idea that things can change, we use seasons of ease to take a nap rather than to prepare. Many of us have been napping the last couple of years, and we haven't been ready for this season. What if we had used that time to prepare? When we think about what is coming and we really don't know, might it be a good idea to use this season to prepare for that? Years ago, we were getting ready to do a uh, big arena gathering, and one of the sponsoring churches uh, was a wealthy church in a a great area of town. And I went and uh, I preached there before the event took place. And I remember preaching about the idea that the uh, the idea that the American dream of every child having a better life than their parents was probably unsustainable. 
It isn't just a matter of everyone gets opportunity, but we really believe that every next generation should have it better financially than the previous generation. Now, at the time, the housing market was booming, and uh, the message was not received very well because young professional couples were buying houses that were appreciating at 20% a year. And for me to say that was frustrating to them. 18 months later, the market tanked completely. Their pastor later told me that most of his staff was so far upside down in their houses, they couldn't leave if God had called them to go somewhere else. He said, they're like ghosts walking in the halls of the church. It's easy to be overly invested in the season that we are in, and then when it ends, we don't know how to operate. We are in an unusual spot right now. We are at the ending of one season and the beginning of the other. The plates that we thought were firm in the ground are shifting, and the ground's going to look different when the shaking is over. But there is a time coming, just like we're in a season of shifting right now, when he exalts us. Our struggle for hope lies in the fact that we thought we had it figured out as to what it was going to look like. And we're realizing our exaltation may not be related to comfort or physical security at all. What if the greatest time of our calling in God coincides with a global pandemic, and we have to live through both of those ideas. This is why it's a hard truth. It illustrates that we were given lip service to an eternal God, but we were betting the whole wad on a short-term return. In God, the biggest payouts happen over the longest stretches of time. So Simon writes to leaders who struggle with humility and who are concerned about the changing of seasons because they were a leader in the last season. Now that seems like nothing they were doing works. And he gives them a couple of directives. First directive is this. Cast anxiety on him. You know, it's not a sin to be anxious. It's it's natural. The question of health and wholeness is what you do with that natural anxiety. Pride tends to lend itself to keeping anxiety to yourself. The houses of our city and probably your city are full of people wringing their hands and trying to figure this out all by themselves. And they're more confused today than they were 10 days ago. Humility lends itself to giving anxiety to Jesus. The word Peter chooses is interesting. He doesn't say lay it at Jesus' feet. He says, cast it, throw it, get rid of it, distance yourself from it. Nobody casts something a short way. It's a conscious recognition of this feeling that I am, what I'm having is not a higher display of responsibility. It's actually damaging, and I need to get away from it. I need to cast this anxiety on him. And we've got, ang- we've got a justification for doing it. Why? Because the next verse says, he cares for you. What a profound thought. The God of all creation cares for you and what you're anxious about. Until the Age of Enlightenment, it was understood that there were kind of two forms of learning things. There was natural understanding, there was revelation. Now, natural revelation was observable and scientific. Revelation was God speaking to the heart of man. During the Enlightenment, great strides were being made in math and science, and they had such faith in their own understanding, they rejected the idea that God cared for man or the events of the earth. They came to say that God created the earth, but he didn't interfere with it. They were deists. Don't fall for the deist's interpretation of God, that he built a ship and pushed it out to sea. God doesn't just float your boat. He wants to captain the vessel. He cares for you. 
And he's inviting us to cast, to throw, to distance ourselves from our anxiety and give it to him. Think about this. God is already thinking about what you're anxious about. God is already pondering a way forward for the things that you're worried about. Do your children worry about anything legitimate that doesn't already weigh on you too? You think about it. Your anxiety naturally rests on him at some level because God wants wholeness for you. You might as well let him carry it for you. Remember that connection of humility to anxiety? It's a wrestling match. Who's in charge if I'm not? Don't wrestle with God for responsibility and authority that rightfully belongs to him. That will cause you anxiety at a level you've never ever felt. I hope that in this coming week, no matter what happens, that you're able to cast your anxiety on him, to understand that you find yourself in an unusual leadership role that uh, you've never found yourself in before. People are looking to you for answers to questions you didn't know even existed a couple of weeks ago. But here we are. Lean in to the love of a father who wants to carry the load for you. He's willing, and he's asking. Cast your anxiety on him and understand there's a day coming when he wants to exalt you and bring you into the fullness of your calling. Let these be days of preparation, not panic. Hope you have a great day. Look forward to speaking to you again next week. God bless. Stop this